14. If you would, please turn in your Bibles there. And I'm going to ask that you turn in your Bibles there today. And um, we will be reading 26 verses, so there will not be any words on the screen. No words on the screen. Uh, so you're going to need to just read along with me, all right? While you're turning there, I know Bob White was just giving me the signal that there is a men's breakfast on Saturday, 8 a.m. Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 27, reading through verse 52. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came, found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. 
Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would speak powerfully through your word, that your spirit would lead our thoughts, any distractions that would keep us from seeing the beauty of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who stayed and gave himself over to suffering for us. I pray, God, you would take those things from our minds right now and show us him. Give us faith to believe that he is our suffering Savior and that he has paid the full price for the measure of our sins. We love you and thank you for this time together in your word. We trust it into your hands, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been looking at the last week of Jesus' life now for four months. And we've still got some weeks to go before we finish the last week of Jesus' life. And just to give you some perspective, the first ten chapters of Mark deal with the first three years of Jesus' ministry. But the last six chapters of Mark deal with one week. I added up the number of verses this week just to try to see it a little more clearly. Mark spends more than one-third of this book on this one week. Do you think that he's trying to emphasize something, trying to teach us something? Maybe the last week contains the highest priorities in Jesus' ministry. So starting here in chapter 14, Mark zeroes in a little bit closer on successive events that lead on to the cross. The last day that Jesus will be alive is captured starting in verse 14. Chapter 14, I'm sorry. And again, today we're going to cover these 26 verses, and I know that a lot is here. But I don't want you to get bogged down into all of it for fear that we might lose our way while we're there. I'm sure you've heard the saying before that you can't see the forest for the trees. And I want to zoom out overhead a bit and tell you something about the forest from the start before we enter into the forest and start talking about the trees that are there. This is the main thing that I want you to see and hear today. It's that when the time comes, the time is here for Jesus. So when that time comes, when he knows that he is about to give his life for sinners. Jesus is willing to stay and sacrifice his life all alone for your salvation and for mine. While all of the disciples preserve their lives and run away. That's what's going on here in these verses. We see a progression here conversation that starts Jesus telling them that they're all going to fall away they're in the garden of Gethsemane they're all sleepy they can't even stay awake for one hour and finally the betrayer comes and they all flee and yet Jesus the Savior he does not run away he stands for us there and so this entire section is marked by the inability of the disciples to stand with their Savior in the moment of his trial but the ability of our Savior to do so by himself, what only he could. And so did the disciples, did they fail him here? Yes. But they could not. They could not go with him any further. The path here forward is for Jesus alone. He is the only one that could walk this path. So I want to start by showing you that the followers fall and flee 
The followers fall and they flee. Isn't that what we see there in verse 27? Jesus tells them that they would do so. He says, you will all fall away. In fact, the scriptures tell us that that will be the case. He quotes from Zechariah chapter 13 that the sheep will be scattered when the shepherd is struck. So when he is hit, all the sheep flee from him. And of course, they don't believe him. They don't think that that is possible for them. Peter says to him here, you know, they all might do that. All of these weaklings, they might fall away, but not me. I'm not gonna. And sadly, Jesus tells Peter here that not only will he fall away, but he will actually deny that he knows him. Peter thinks that sounds even more crazy. He cannot see the possibility in his heart that he would do so. In fact, he tells Jesus, not only will I not deny you, I'll die with you. You'll see. And then we're told, and they all said the same. Me too. I'll die with you, Lord. Every one of them. I'll stand when that time comes. We need to understand that the heart is deceitful. Peter was going to learn that very soon, that very night. He would see how deceitful his own heart was. And it's a lesson that we all have to face if we're going to see how much we actually need a Savior. And then the scene shifts into a place called Gethsemane. We know it as the Garden of Gethsemane. A place where Jesus often took his disciples. It's the original olive garden. It literally means olive press. As they walked in, Jesus tells eight of his disciples, they're, I guess, at the edge somewhere of the garden, you all stay here. Then he tells Peter, James, and John, you guys come with me just a little bit further inside of the garden. These same three disciples that he took up on top of the Mount of Transfiguration with him. He tells them to wait and watch. They apparently were the lookout for Judas and all those soldiers that Jesus knew who were coming for him. He told them to wait here and watch. He wanted to be alerted when it happened. We read that three times Jesus goes into the garden to pray, and then he comes back to his disciples three times, and every time he finds them out there sleeping the first time he returns, he says to Peter, Simon, notice he doesn't call him Peter here, calls him Simon, the name that he had before he was a follower, before he knew who Jesus was. Simon, are you asleep? Can you not even stay awake one hour? The man who told me that he would go to death with me? The man who's ready to go to battle? The man who's not going to deny me, you can't even stay awake one hour. Watch and pray, he says, that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And what an apt description, isn't it? Not just of Peter, but of ourselves. Every disciple that has followed Jesus since knows something of this. The spirit is willing, the spirit wants to, but what we find is that the flesh is actually weak. It fails us. 
It's all these men. We read here just a few verses before that said they all said the same. We're ready to die with you, Jesus. What do we see now? These same men are all sleeping. Judas arrives in the garden with a crowd who had swords and clubs. And don't you love Jesus' response here? He's like, why have you come with swords and clubs? I was out there in the temple every day teaching. You could have come and taken me any time that you want. You come in the darkness of night and you've got swords and clubs. Am I a robber? Am I a thief? Am I a brute? Am I a murderer? Am I somebody who needs to be captured like this? They didn't know what they were going to encounter when they came and found Jesus. I love Mark or John's description. If you were to read this, when they all show up, the, the captors come for Jesus and they ask who he is. And he says, I am he. And when he did, they, they all fell down, toppled to the ground by the voice of Christ. Showing what this could have been like had he wanted it to. I don't need swords. I don't need clubs to defend me or my people. All I have to do is speak and could destroy every one of you. But he's ready. He knows it's his time. His disciples, though, and I think maybe their claim to want to die with Jesus was something like they thought they were his army and they were ready to go to war. We read elsewhere they had a couple of swords on them. So to die with them to them didn't mean the cross. It meant the glorious battlefield. And so we see here that one of the disciples, unnamed by Mark but named, by, named elsewhere, this was Peter, he struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. But Jesus makes it clear that there's not going to be any fighting like that, that the time of his capture has come, and so has the time of his death. Now what do we read about the disciples there in verse 50? Very quickly it happens. These men who said that they were all ready to die and they would not fall away. We read, and they all left him and fled. That quick. Just a matter of hours, these men who had made a confession of their loyalty to Jesus, even to death, had all left and run for their lives. And we get a curious statement here in verse 51. A strange addition to the story. We're told that a young man had followed Jesus to this place with nothing on but a linen cloth around his body. The mob seized him, but he pulled away and he left that linen cloth behind and he ran away naked. That's weird, isn't it? Don't even know who he is. Why is this part of the story? So we're not told who this man was, no other details about him, only that he came with a bedsheet on following Jesus. What is the point of this strange statement? I don't think it really matters so much who the young man was. Most people guess that it was Mark himself, that he inserts himself into the story here and just doesn't give himself a name. 
and it very well could have been that. But what the young man shows us here is a summary of everyone else who had followed Jesus. He is a picture of what had happened with every other disciple who had followed him there. He follows him there, so did all these other disciples. But what did they do? They all fled and ran away. And what does he do? The same. The followers fall away and flee. This seems to be the clear teaching that Mark wants to emphasize here. And maybe he leaves this particular unknown, unnamed young man to challenge those who would read this later on to examine their own hearts, to see about their own readiness to stand with or abandon Jesus. So I think there's application here for us. I think there's certainly application here as we read about all of these other disciples and what they did. They were so self-assured. So self-assured that they would never fall away. So confident in their words to Jesus that they would all die with him. But what are we told? They all left him and fled. And I want to make a simple truth claim about your heart and mine. Something that we see here in the actions of the disciples. That there is greater weakness, greater weakness in your heart than you realize. If placed, we could call them the right circumstances, but quite honestly, they're the wrong circumstances. So if you were placed in the right situation... The sin that is in you would be drawn out in greater measure than you think is possible. We need to look at these disciples and see that we should be careful that when we think we stand, take heed lest we fall. Sin is much more powerful in you and in me than we realize. It is constantly lying in wait, looking for a moment to take you down. I think there's something of this being taught in the sleepiness of the disciples there in the Garden of Gethsemane. A night or two before this, Jesus was teaching his disciples up there on the Mount of Olives. And the last thing that he says to them is that they should stay awake. Stay awake. Remain watchful. Don't let your guard down. Pay attention. Always be on the lookout. And so here he takes Peter and James and John further into the garden and he tells them what? Watch. Stay awake. And then what does he do? He returns and he finds them sleeping. He now tells them, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. I mean, Jesus, they're just asleep. Watch and pray that they don't fall into temptation. Like, what are you, what are you talking about here? Temptation into what? Falling asleep? 
getting drowsy at night. That happens to me every night. And pray for what? Pray that they will stay awake? Is there something I'm missing here? Jesus must be talking to them about more, more than what is happening in the Garden of Gethsemane that night. What's happening to them as they get sleepy and as they get drowsy, as they become unfaithful, is a larger lesson about discipleship. He is not done teaching them yet. He says, stay awake, don't get sleepy. Know that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so he knows that the right desire for these men is there. He knows that they want to stand with him. They want to go to death with him, in a sense. They do not want to deny him. They want to stay faithful. But the flesh is weak. They all wanted to not fall away. But we read, they all left him and fled. Jesus is telling these things to us too. Sin is lurking in your heart. Not just your neighbor's heart. We're really good at seeing sin in other people, aren't we? We can point it out. We can see all their faults, all their failures. Pick people apart. I can see your sin. We are very poor most of the time at seeing our own. And sin is lurking in your heart, waiting for the right time, the right temptation to come along and just draw it right out of you. So brothers and sisters, watch and pray. As Jesus says to his disciples here, that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. And so is there any area in your life where you might have gotten sleepy? Any place where you've let your guard down? Maybe allowed your heart to wander. Giving yourself over to bitterness. Maybe justified the bitterness. Maybe you've begun to lust. Or just get worldly, little by little, like erosion that happens. Day by day, the waters of the world are crashing against the rocks. And your heart is constantly receding further and further away from Jesus. You're not going to notice it on any one particular day. But if you could look back over the course of a couple of years, there is a great deal of recession taking place. You are not as committed as you once were. Maybe you're unforgiving, gossipy judgmental and there's a lot of that going around in our world right now isn't there and we become very much like the world when we don't watch and pray that we might not enter into temptation so we need to understand that a sin nature still exists in us it has been weakened 
by the power of Christ. There is great power that we have access to inside of us. The Spirit of God, the power of the resurrection is there. But so often we don't live in it. I hope that you are watching and praying. But you have to realize that that sin nature is still there in you. And you might not think that it is possible, but shocking sin could still come out of you if the right circumstances presented themselves. Maybe it will come after a long decline downward. Or maybe like here with these disciples, it will happen in an instant. They were not anticipating the time when all of these guards all of a sudden have come and grabbed hold of their master and are taking him away. What should we do? It's danger time. And they all flee. Self-preservation took hold. And they ran away. And so, brothers and sisters, you and I, we need to understand in our day-to-day walk, things look safe, don't they? Things look safe. We live in a protected country with all sorts of liberties, but there are all sorts of dangers that come along with that. We become numb. We don't stay vigilant. We get soft and lazy. I genuinely think that that is the greatest threat right now to the American church. It's just laziness, worldliness. We're comfortable. And maybe it will require some discomfort for the church to be more vigilant. So the disciples and this unnamed young man, this follower, they give us an opportunity to see ourselves. I get to see me, in a sense, right here in this discipleship story. We always need to be reminded, don't we, that we are not the Savior. We're not the Savior. We're not the powerful. We're the weak. We are the fleeing disciples. One of my favorite examples of this in Scripture is the story of David and the Goliath. I saw a post from some lady on social media um, this last week talking about needing to go out there and slay your Goliaths and junk like that. Because in that story... There are the cowering Israelites over here on one side, afraid of this giant. They don't know what to do. And then here comes along David, the ruddy little shepherd. And who do we want to be in the story? And who does sometimes we want to tell our children to be? You need to be David. Well, guess what? They're not. And we are the ones who are cowering over on the side not knowing what to do, needing a Savior. And his name is Jesus. There is only one who has come along and slayed any kind of Goliath, and it's not you and it's not me. So the Bible presents us in these stories, not as powerful, but as weak. And we need to see our weakness in order to know our strength. And our strength is Jesus Christ. And so here in this particular story, who are we? We're the guys who are confessing to Jesus, I would never do that. I'd never leave you. I'm strong, Jesus, just like you are. And I will stand when the moment comes. Self-assured, confident, dependent on themselves. And when the moment presents itself, what happens? They run. 
And only one is left there. The only one who really could have stood all along. And it's Jesus. So secondly, we need to see the Savior who stands and stays. His disciples, his followers, they fall away, they flee. We need to look this morning at the Savior who stood and stayed. His hour had come. It was time to fulfill his role as the Lamb of God. And as I've mentioned, he could have in that moment. He was not captive to anybody else's will but the will of God. He wasn't taken away. He allowed himself to be taken. He could have destroyed those men before they ever even walked into the garden and his disciples didn't even have to know they were out there. They walk out safely and go on their way. But Jesus knew that his hour had come. It was time for him to fulfill that role as the Lamb of God. And what we see here in Gethsemane is a glimpse of just a glimpse behind the curtain at the crushing reality of what he was about to go through. History is littered with men who have given their lives for Christ and they met their fate with calm. But what we see here is something much different in Jesus. He is in complete anguish. Should we think that all of those men who followed him, that they faced death with more courage than Jesus did? Of course not. From what we see in the Garden of Gethsemane, it should be clear that Jesus is facing something much more daunting than death. We read in verses 33 and 34 that he began to be greatly distressed. It means alarmed. He's alarmed here. He's distressed. He is greatly troubled. And then he says, my soul is very sorrowful to the point of death. And I don't think that he means that he knows he's about to die here. He knows he's going to go to the cross. There is such anguish inside of him, probably feels as though he is about to die right there, like his soul is being ripped in half. So what was so troubling to Jesus that we're told elsewhere, that while he was in the garden, that he began to sweat something like great drops of blood? He was being pushed emotionally to the brink of what his body was able to endure. So what was underneath this that caused his soul to recoil like this? He mentioned something about it when he asked that the cup, the cup would be removed from him. And what is the cup? The cup is God's wrath. The Almighty's perfect, holy fury poured out on sin. And Jesus knew that he was about to drink that. If there is one man who has ever lived who actually understood what the cup of God's wrath meant in all of its horror, it is Jesus. Jesus. 
You know, we read about it in a book. We talk about it. We might get an inkling from time to time. We get a little fear in our hearts. But Jesus knew completely what this was and what it looked like. The one man who had never sinned, this man in all of his purity, he was going to become sin and experience this cup for many. And in the process of becoming sin, what would happen to Jesus? What would happen to Jesus in that moment? He was going to be separated from the love of God that he had known in its fullness from before the world had been made. That fellowship that he had had with God the Father, always perfect love that they had for each other, that comfort, that presence, he had always known it. And he knew that in that moment on the cross that he would be separated from that. He mentions that love in John chapter 17, that love, that everlasting love. And we get to taste fragments of that love right now, but we have not experienced it to the full like Jesus had. That perfect joy with the Father that is unhindered by sin. His heart never wandered. He never doubted. He had never experienced anything except this, and he knew it was about to come to a brief halt. You and I, we look forward to heaven with the expectation of a kind of bliss that we have never experienced before. But Jesus has known that bliss always into eons and eons of eternity past. And now here he is about to be cut off from it. And instead of heaven, Jesus is literally going to taste hell. That's what he tasted there on the cross, hell. The wrath of God poured out on sin. And so here in this moment in Gethsemane, Gethsemane of course, his heart recoiled. These are all words to us and truths that are a little bit blurry. We see in a glass darkly, the Bible says. We don't see very clearly everything, and we don't feel everything clearly either. But they were perfectly clear to Jesus on that day, and the result was horror. To the point where he, in his human nature, prayed, knowing that all things are possible with God, and he asked that the cup of wrath could be removed from him. And then immediately following that with a statement of complete trust when he said, but not my will, but your will be done. It is a powerful moment where we get to see something of the wrestling that's going on inside the heart of our Savior. And it causes us to ask some questions. Was Jesus' will not the same as the Father's? When he says, not my will, but yours. 
And did he not know that he was going to the cross? Had he, had he not planned this with the Father and with the Spirit from eternity past that this was going to come? In the early decades and centuries of the church, things like this were debated. They were talked about. They were wrestled with, discussed. And to make a long story short, the early theologians declared that based on Scripture, that Jesus has two distinct natures. He has a human nature and he has a divine nature. He has both inside of one person. And in a situation like we have in front of us in this passage, Jesus is praying out of his human nature, asking God here if there is another way for humanity to be saved without him having to endure God's wrath and separation from his Father, even though his divine nature had always existed and even planned for the cross to happen. You know, Mark and the other gospel writers who talk about this very thing, they all mention something like this. They could have just chosen not to include any of it and kept challenging things from our minds. But they chose to write them down for generations and generations of Christians to read. Why? Because it's true. This happened. And in this story, we see our suffering Savior. He genuinely suffered and was tempted. He experienced temptation, not just from the devil, but this night in Gethsemane, he experienced temptation to the full. And what did he do? He stood and he stayed for us. Jesus did not shrink back from the Father's will. He experienced a kind of temptation that night that no other man has ever experienced who ever walked the earth. What it says, he was to the point of death, and yet he did not choose a path that was separate from the will of God. He withstood. So that you and I, can know and experience with the Father what he has always known and experienced with the Father. He was willing to, for a brief time there on the cross, set that aside and experience the wrath of God in your place and in my place so that we could have the bliss of heaven always. Our, stood, our Savior stood and he stayed so that we could know that. He did not fall. He did not flee. When he was tempted, he stayed. And this is what we need to see here. As I've mentioned, we are the ones who are prone to fall. We are weak. We cower. We run. Our hearts are prone to wander, but God has sent a Savior for us from heaven who is none of those things. He is strong, he stands, and he stayed for us. And this morning, 
We simply need to look at him. Look at your Savior. Behold your God. The world is falling apart around him. He's been betrayed by one of his friends. He knows all of his disciples are going to leave him, and they do. He is all alone, and he's willing to walk that path alone so that all of us can walk in. Will you look at your Savior this morning? I think the appropriate response from our hearts is gratitude, praise, and love for Jesus our Lord. He is the Savior who stood for every sinner that falls, and that's every one of us. We get grace in this story, and he's the one that gets the glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word because your word shows us our Christ. It shows him suffering in our place. It shows him willing to take the cup of your wrath. He tasted hell so that we don't have to. So, Father, would you please turn the eyes of our heart, even in this moment, to see our strong Savior. And by faith, take hold of him. We admit before you that we fail constantly. Not just in our actions, but in our thoughts, in our words that we use in conversation, in the things that we choose to do with our time, we fail. And you have given us a Savior who doesn't. So Lord, please put our attention on him, to trust in him, not in ourselves, to understand that there is sin inside of our hearts that is powerful It is waiting at the door, ready to take us at any moment. And we get very confident. We get numb. We get dull to these things. We get sleepy. Open up our hearts to see the danger that is there. But open up our hearts to see the Savior who is there. That is such good news. It's not about how good we are. It's about how good our Savior is. Give us faith to see him this morning, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.